Hello and welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. This episode is part of a new series of farmer interviews, and my guest is Jill Burkhart, who farms with her husband, their kids, and her father-in-law near the hamlet of Gwyn, Alberta. Gwyn is just east of Wetaskiwin, about 75 kilometers south of Edmonton. The farm produces cattle, cereals, canola, alfalfa, and they've tried faba beans. I met Jill at the Alberta Canola Leaders event in Edmonton in March. Jill is also a farm writer, like me, which we'll get to in a minute, after I ask her about her role on the farm. My role on the farm is um, sort of everything. I look after the cattle um, for calving uh, summer and bringing them home. And then I help feed in the winter time and I help combine and I help put up hay. So I'm sort of here wherever is needed as needed. So I can drive pretty much all the equipment. The only things I refuse to do are drive the semi and uh, seed and spray. You don't spray, you don't seed, and you don't drive the semi. Well, semi, I can understand. You um, you need a class one for that. <laughs> maybe maybe you have your class one, do you? No. <laughs> no. And what is uh, it about? Seeding, I find, is too, the seeding is too high pressure, I find. I just, you know, if something goes wrong, if you don't have, you know, if you get a run plugged, and you don't notice it right away, you know, there's your crop for the year. Like it's, to me, it's too much pressure and spraying. I'm just, again, I'm scared I'm gonna screw something up and not rinse something right, or just something will go wrong or I'll use the wrong spray on the wrong crop or, you know, I, I just find those two are too high pressure for me. I suppose all farmers would feel that same sort of pressure. <laughs> and you don't, as, as you're yeah. seeding the crop, I mean those those plugged runs or those those misses uh, sure show up, and they often happen on those fields that are right beside the highway as well. You know, and all the neighbors are right there to point them out. So I uh, I leave that to my husband and uh, my son actually started seeding last year, so they oh, can go good. for it all they want. Yep. And one of the things you do is you do some writing on the side, so you and I have that in common. Uh, and, and I looked yeah. at some of your work at Alberta Farmer Express, and you said you also did some for cattlemen in the past. You write a lot about your cattle side of the business. Is that your favorite part of the farm? Well, it's what I have experience with. Um, as a kid, I did grow up on a um, cat, like a corn soybean farm in, in the Midwest, and we had hogs. I spent a lot of my time with my dad in the hog farm, and then once he got out of hogs, I, we got into cattle and I've sort of just naturally migrated that way because when we got into cattle, dad seeded all the land to pasture. So we got out of crop when I was about 10 or 12, I'm thinking. Ever since then, I naturally gravitated toward cattle. So then when Kelly and I got married, we, um, we had a few cattle and I uh, worked for, my, my degree is in rangeland management. So I, I dealt with cattle, cattle grazing, they're sort of, it's just familiar to me. But I did step outside the box um, after I quit working for the province in 2011. And I worked for a fertilizer company um, out of Winnipeg, actually. For, 
eight months. And um, I, I did learn enough to be deadly in the crop world. So um, that's always what I say. I, I do have a little bit of experience and, and I'm gaining more and more um, as far as as far as the crop side, but I'm just more comfortable um, with the cattle side. How did you get into writing? So when I um, had my second child, um, I quit my job and I decided to market some freezer beef. And with that, I also started a blog um, and a website. And I started blogging. I um, met up with a journalist that writes for the Alberta Farmer at a meeting and tour I was hosting for the Society for Range Management. And I just mentioned that, you know, I just started getting into writing and I think it's neat. And, you know, it's something maybe in the future I'd be interested in writing. And I was thinking more columns. Um, And she told the editor and he phoned me and asked me to write an article and that's sort of where it started eight years ago. It was a big learning curve, not having a journalist background. And my only background was really scientific writing um, in college or in university. So, Do you remember your first article? Yes. <laughs> what was it about? It was horrible. <laughs> uh, it was about the verified, it, it was about the verified beef program. And it was horrible because I didn't know how to write an article in third person. So I wrote it as a column and then the editor read it and handed it back to me and said, okay, now write this in third person. And I'm like, what, like, what do you mean? This this is how I'd write an article if it was me, but um, he helped me get through it. And that was my first one. And um, I'm sure if I read it now again, I would cringe. So just on the third person thing. So this just means that you're, you're like the fly on the wall. You're writing as you're observing it, but it's not, I saw this, I saw that it's this happened, that happened. (laughs) None of that was explained to me when he gave me the article. So I I wrote about my experience with the program. So uh, in my mind, that's what it was. So. Jill, we're going to go into a, a, a bigger topic, and it's about your yeah. vision for for agriculture. Have you thought about the big picture for agriculture on the prairies, and and do you have a vision for where you think agriculture should go? I think one thing um, for from my from my perspective that that should happen or that needs to happen on the prairies is we need to have more small. Um, small processors or small plants and not only for beef cattle um, or livestock, but also for some of these niche markets for crops as well. Like I look in Saskatchewan, for example, and they have, you know, they have a market for quinoa, they have a market for chickpeas. They have, they have all these smaller, um, I guess for, I would call them niche crops. Um, And in Alberta, we really don't have much of that. so I'd like to see more of that. Um, I'd like to see more local. And I mean, I know there's a huge push for local and it seems sort of, I guess, overdone um, sometimes. But, you know, I think one of our hangups, especially for cattle, is getting that animal processed. Um, I know our local um, abattoir is fortunately only 20 minutes away, but I know he was receiving folks from six hours away. So, you know, why is someone from six from you know six hours away driving to our local 
um, our local abattoir. So it's, you know, that's obviously a hang up in the, you know, in the chain there. Um, and I've seen some stuff coming down the pipe, which it seems promising, but I'd like to see it actually come to fruition. You know, say if we wanted to grow quinoa here, we'd have to haul it to Saskatoon um, or Regina, I think are the two um, places. If you participated in setting up a local processor, do you think quinoa would be a crop you'd be interested in? I would be interested in growing it. And I know some folks around here have dabbled in it. From what I've read, our um, our environment would be suited for it. I think it would just at least be neat to try. I do know there is a bit of challenges with growing it um, as far as herbicide and weed control. You mentioned that you your blog was about selling your own beef. Are you still doing that? Are you still selling beef directly? Yes. Yes, I don't. I used to go to a farmer's market and do a lot more with marketing, but I've come to the point in my life where I just I don't have time to do all the marketing and sit at the farmer's market stall. Um, you know, it's just a different season in my life I've come to now, but I still do quite a bit of business just with clients that I gain through these markets or just people that know that we do this locally, so I do continue it. I just don't do it in quite the force that I used to do it in. Are you driven by higher profits in this case, or is this more that your your again your vision for agriculture is to have closer connections with your customers? What what motivated the to to sell your own beef? It, it was not profit. <laughs> <laughs> at all. It was more, um, I do, I want people to get that connection. I want people to know, you know, that where their food comes from. I want people to not be scared of their food. There's so much food fear mongering out there that I want people to know that they can trust a farmer, um, that, that we're not out there to harm their food, as you see in so many um, things, especially through social media. That's how, what really drove it, that, you know, you buy your beef from me. Well, not only do I raise your beef, but I also also grow wheat that goes to feed the world for example you know that that i'm you know this is what one product that i raise but these are other products that we do raise so you can trust the food system well what was your um, farmer's market experience like um i i chose to go to edmonton right off the bat initially when i started it was really good um you know i was going once a month and we were selling out pretty much all the time but i found a lot of the um, a lot of the farmers market was economy driven. So if it was you know if if the economy took a downturn, for example, oil field, um, then so would the markets. So hmm. or the farmers market would. So it was I felt it was really local economic driven, you know. And it was it was interesting to see what people purchased. Um, I'll give you this example at Thanksgiving yeah. one year, I brought beef. Um, but we also smoked a bunch of, we had a bunch of bones in the freezer. So we smoked a bunch of bones and marketed those as dog bones. I didn't sell one pound of hamburger, of ground beef, but I sold out of dog bones. So it was very interesting to see people's spending habits. So we did end up selling more, you know, doing more dog bones for markets, um, you know, for it. And um, we still have a dog bone market at the local kennel. So it's quite interesting. 
Did you like yeah. the social interaction or the interaction with the customers? Was that rewarding or is that almost more frustrating? What was that experience like? It was very interesting. Um, there were times where it was very frustrating, um, but it was very rewarding, especially when you could have those conversations where people would bring their their fears, you know, their their genuine questions to you. Um, I've and you know, I the whole educate the consumer thing I don't agree with because I've talked to very smart very, very smart people. Um, professors at U of A, for example, were buying my beef at, at um, when I was up in the city marketing it. And, you know, it was great to have those those high-end conversations with them. And it really, really challenged me to, to my thinking um, for how we do stuff on our farm to and public perception. You know, I've had conversations with vegans, you know, and, um, you know, why their choices are. But um, that one person, for example, she chose to purchase beef from me for her family. It was her choice to be vegan, but she didn't want her family to be, but she wanted an ethical food source. Mm. So we had that conversation and she made the decision to purchase from us based on our conversation. So it was times like that where it was very rewarding. You, you said you don't agree with educating the consumers. Did I hear that right? What do you mean? Well, this whole, we have to tell the consumer how it is, I guess. Um, you know, there are very educated consumers out there that do a lot of research. Um, I think instead of educating, we just need to tell our story and show them what, and, and just tell them what we do and talk to them, you know, as a level, as an equal, not that we're above them because we know better for our farm. You know, the, yeah, they may read stuff that's out there, but, but we need to tell them our perspective. You know, we need to talk to them, not really tell them, but um, show them our perspective and, you know, um, why we do stuff. And a lot of times it makes sense to them once we explain this is why we do it, not we have to do it this way because or this is, you know, um, you know, once you have those conversations, as I said, I was talking to professors that, you know, were obviously very intelligent that if you said, well, I'm going to educate you on why we do it this way you know, rather than just having that conversation. Right. I get it. So it's not that you don't want, you don't think we should have the conversations. It's this notion of we're educating you. So it's the the terminology. Yes. It's not the act. It's uh, yeah. So you, you, yes. you think those, those yeah. connections with the consumers just to talk about what you do and why you do it. That's more rewarding than yes. trying to educate them. Okay. Yes. I got you. How would you like to see your farm in five years, 10 years? I have many visions and I'm always, I'm a thinker and I'm always thinking of what's next, what's next, what's next. And, you know, I have huge ideas um, and, and so does my husband. Like we've, we've had ideas of, you know, taking our feedlots and, and it's very small right now. It's only 150 head and we just use our own, um, our own animals. Um, we've had the ideas of taking that and, you know, potentially putting in like biodigesters and running the farm off that, for example. I don't know if that's something that we'll end up doing, but, you know, that was what we always put in the 10 year plan. Um, you know, goals like that is to make the feedlot bigger and, and have it eventually power the farm. Um, 
one small goal that we've looked at that we're actually implementing this year is doing, um, so we've already implemented a rotational grazing system um, about just about 20 years ago on the farm. Well, we're taking that a step further now and we're doing some um, of the adaptive multi-paddock grazing, so a more uh, higher intensity rotation. Um, and so that's one step we've wanted to do, and we're actually taking that step this summer and doing it on a couple pastures and hoping to eventually, the goal there is to stock more animals on the same amount of land. I wanna go back to the biodigesters bio for a sec. What, what exactly mm -hmm. are they? What they do is they use the manure from the cattle and they, um, they digest it down and then you can use it to power. Um, like as a green source of power. Like the methane, like you actually use the gas yeah, to generate like heat, Yeah, you harvest the gas to generate heat, yeah. Yeah, they do it a lot in Ontario and we've, like we haven't looked into this incredibly well just because it's always, it's just been an idea in our head. Like, you know, your little thought bubbles out there of what could we do and that's it. So um, that's about as far as it's come for us right now. It's just a neat concept, especially if everything's going green. Um, you know, solar power up here, we right now we're covered in fog. So I don't think solar power is quite the way we, and we're not super windy. So we've thought of, well, what happens if we are forced to go green? And that's probably one thing that we would look at. So that's sort of where that idea came about. I like your idea of getting more from each acre. And I want to ask about your crop rotation. As, as cattle producers, I guess you could say you have the luxury of having forages and feed grains in your rotation, forages in particular, because those are like a, a cover crop. And this, the idea of a cover crop planted in the fall and, and taken out in the spring obviously doesn't work on the prairies. We have our winters are just too long. But a cover crop that's left in for a year or two, which you might just say it's alfalfa or forage in the rotation, uh, and use cover crop mm -hmm. as a as a fancy modern term for it. <laughs> but yeah. how, like yeah. when you look at your whole farm, how does that that cattle feed, particularly the forages or the alfalfa, contribute to your your whole your whole rotation profitability? Well, we do we do try to rotate it in, um, and part of it hasn't been like we're working to do more of it now um it's um you know because it does affect profitability so when you take 100 acres out of canola production for example and put it to hay production well it takes you know you, you takes that first year um to grow the alfalfa so you don't get i mean you might get the cover crop you know the nurse crop off of it that year for green feed well, then the next year you're cutting it, you know, so you get about five to six years of production out of it. Um, and with the price of seed and all that, you want to keep it in for, you know, the price of input. So you want to keep it in for a few years. Um, so we're, we do, I guess with our alfalfa rotations, we do sort of smaller chunks that we rotate in and out. But we do have the luxury in the fall of running the cows over some of the stubble, um, utilizing the manure. and um, this coming year, we're actually doing a, a living, we're part of the Alberta Living Labs, and we're doing a living lab out here with cattle rotation and 
in crop and then seeing the fertilizer reduction possibilities that come with it. Yeah, have you have you ever measured that before? Like the the nutrient gain from from your alfalfa rotation? No, other than just a soil test. Yeah. Is that um, what attracted you to the living lab? So you can start putting some numbers to these this rotation, or what was it about the living lab that was interesting for you? Yeah, um, a bit of putting numbers and a bit of like more more physical data. We do some corn grazing here anyway, so we're going to do um, standing corn grazing in one of them. And we don't know if after one year of grazing corn intensively, if you see a slight dip in fertilizer reduction, or is it two years, or is it three years? You know, at what point in time do you start to see those benefits? And at what uh, percentage of benefit are you seeing? So after one year, are you getting a 10, you know, are you able to reduce your fertilizer, for example, by 10% after two years? Is it a 20% after 30, you know, three years, is it a 30%? Like where in time and at what level do you get the benefits, I guess, is sort of what we're like, we want to look at. What's the most profitable part of your farm? You've got the cattle, which I, sounds like you love. You've got the, you've got the hayland, which contribute to the cattle. You've, and then you've got the, the mm -hmm. canola, you've got the cereals and you tried faba beans. It depends on the quarter section of land because where we run our cattle, it's most profitable with cattle being there. You would never grow even average um, crops, even average cereal crops on those quarters. Um, and then on our crop side of things, the, the land that we do um, keep in a crop rotation, it's dependent on the year now. So in the past few years, it's been the oats and barley that have been the most profitable. Gotta say, Jay, canola is my favorite crop to combine. If I could sit in the combine and combine anything all day, it would be canola. <laughs> Why is that? So um, we do standing canola and um, it's it's just easy to combine. <laughs> From my perspective, uh, cereals, I find, you know, when they lodge, it's just, it's a pain to try to scrape them up off the ground. But canola, uh, when it stands there, it stands so nice and just run right through her and it goes in the combine so easy. How long ago did you switch from swathing to straight combining? I want to say at least six years ago. We were one of the first adapters in our, our area to try it. And what? I'm sure people thought we were crazy. Huh. But, um, what, what, it's pretty common now. So what motivated you six years ago to switch? Um, my husband went to a meeting or went to a crop tour and they were going to try it. And he's like, uh, you know what? That's one less pass over the field. You know, you're not paying to run a swather over it. And we had a, you know, we have the straight cut headers. So why not try it? I want to say we did one quarter that year. Because um, he had to, I mean, at that time, our his dad, uh, my father-in-law was more involved with making farm decisions with us. Um, and uh, he's like, let's just try, you know, let's try one quarter. And that's always been our thing. If we find something new, let's try it on one quarter or on half, you know, on 80 acres or something. Let's just try it. You know, you're not paying to run that swather over it. So you had one less pass. Automatically, that field was already more profitable than the ones you had to swap. So that's sort of where we got started from. And he loved it. So the next year we did the whole, we did everything. How many times would you try something and fail at it before you gave up? Like, say if that first, 
first experience was was not good. Do you think you would still be swathing mm -hmm. canola or would you have tried again a couple of times just to make sure? It, it depends. We, we look at economics a lot of times when we make our decisions. So if the potential to save money is there, we'll try it again. Um, we've done some stuff on our cattle side. For example, swath grazing, we tried it once. We had a complete disaster. We haven't done it since. So um, because it did cost us more money in the long run um, from, you know, we had to go back in and work the field before spring because the the snow, we had a big snowfall, then it got warmed up and it became hard pack and the cows couldn't dig down. So we tried to go in there with a uh, um, with a ditcher and go in alongside and tried to push up the, the snow so the cows could get at the swaths. So, you know, we were trying to run equipment in and snow plow for them and then in the end, it snowed again, and then it got warm. You know, we just kept having that snowfall and hard pack, and and we, you know, we finally just gave up. And then the then spring came, and we had all this mess of swathed, uh. you know, swathed crop there. So then we had to work it in a couple times. So in the end, it wasn't profitable. But I think the canola, you know, if it didn't work out that year, I'm sure we may not have tried it the next year, but we might have gave it a go again. Or if somebody else tried it. You know, we saw somebody go, well, maybe we should try that again. If the the cost savings is there, we, we like to look at it multiple times. You said that you make a lot of decisions based on economics and profitability. Yet earlier you talked about, you know, this this selling of your own beef. And it's not profit motivated. Obviously, you, you need to make money um, and you need to make decisions that improve, improve your ability to make money. But like, how do you decide, um, you know, this, yes, we're doing this because we need to make money. And then there's other things you'll decide. We're going to do this because we feel like it's the right thing to do. So are there other okay. things that you'd like to consider on the farm because they're the right thing to do? Um, I guess with our living lab, we're we're looking at using the cattle because that's, I guess it's not really the right thing to do, but we're looking at reducing our synthetic inputs because that's, you know, that's sort of where the, I guess what the government policies that were proposed and, um, you know, sort of the environmental, um, the, the environmental push that we're getting and, and the regenerative farming push that's coming as well. You know, that's sort of where, you know, with that, is it going to be profitable to take, you know, a quarter of land out of production and put it into cattle feed for, um, you know, three to five years? You know, um, I, I can tell you probably not, but we need that cattle feed. So it's sort of a, it is a trade-off with that. Um, but then we know that we're we're trying to work at reducing our inputs, which comes back to the profitability and in the same circle we're also looking at you know doing better for the environment so um we're fifth generation here on this on this farm so some of it too and what we do is looking forward to how we can you know keep that sixth generation you know and if and if the kids have kids then you know the seventh generation here and if making the land better is you know is the key then that's what we're going to do
Do you think one of your three kids will farm? Do you get that sense? I do. Um, two for sure. I'm not the six year old gives me mixed feelings some days. It gives mixed signals. Um, I, I might be mother of a chicken farmer. So um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, let's let's wrap up. I just want to just on, on the note of, of yeah. the next generation. How do you make the farm yes. attractive to to even both of them from a profitability and a lifestyle mm -hmm. perspective? How, how do you set it up now so that they can be successful? Well, right now, um, the oldest one, he started, we started him when he started showing interest, when he wanted to ride with dad in the tractor seating, when he wanted to sit in the combine and combine with dad, when he wanted to start driving that combine with dad, we let them, we let them try stuff on the farm. Um, and if that's their interest, we sort of push them. Um, we, we sort of light that fire with them and make them excited for doing stuff. Um, like with the middle one, she is very interested in the cattle. So she's she has a small herd of three cows right now at 11, and she's making decisions on her own small herd. Um, you know, of course I help her and I guide her, but um, you know, if she she fails, well then it's a lesson for her to learn and that's the best lesson, but I'm gonna be here to help pick her up if she does you know, if she does make a failure, because, you know, you're going to make mistakes along the way. But the biggest thing is to let them, you know, to let your kids make those mistakes, and and then to help them recover from those mistakes. And so that's what we're here for with them, and to help them drive their passions. You know, if they want to spend half the day in the tractor, you know, with our oldest, he, um, they're, and they're all homeschooled. So that helps, um, that helps them drive, that helps drive their interest. So if they want to spend the afternoons you know working with dad in the combine or working you know going to see the canola um that's what he can do um so we really we really push their interests we involve them in the day-to-day -day workings so yeah some days it's drudgery for them and they do complain but um we also make we also try to make it fun and um and we try to not say no when they ask to do stuff on the farm Jill, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Jay. It was fun. Thank you for asking. Jill Burkhart lives on a mixed farm near Gwynn, Alberta. While at the Alberta Canola Leaders event in Edmonton, I asked each participant a question, a question they picked at random from my envelope of inquiries. Here is Jill's question and answer. Who are you and where do you farm? Jill Burkhart and I farm near Gwynn. This is one of my favorite questions. What is your favorite place on the farm? My favorite place on the farm is a place that we call the hill and it's a cattle pasture. What is it about that place that you like? There's a lot of wetlands on that area. Um, there's native grass, which isn't found uh, very common in our area. And there's a lot of wildlife and waterfowl in that area as well. How will you protect that space? So we're already working on protecting that space. Um, it's part of a Living Labs initiative that we're doing right now. So we're doing um, some adaptive multi-paddock grazing in it. And as well, um, so we're looking at protecting the amount of um, grass. Um, so we're taking cattle over it quicker and not overgrazing it. And we're also looking at putting in off-site waters to protect the waterfowl and keep the cattle out of the lakes and sloughs on that property.
Right on. Thank you, Jill. Yes, Canola Watch is an agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada with support from the three prairies-based canola grower organizations, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. At the core of Canola Watch is a timely agronomy email with regular updates throughout the growing season on pests, weather, fertilizer management, and other topics. If you are not already subscribed, please sign up at canolawatch.org. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. Thank you very much for listening.